0: And are you still um, the pen, uh, doing the Pentecostal, Vatican Pentecostal Dialogues? With I Killian? Yeah, I'm okay. still co-chair
1: of the uh, of the dialogue. Okay. Killian has since retired. I
0: haven't seen him for a couple of years. He has. Yeah, he has uh-huh. retired. Okay. Uh,
1: I miss him greatly. I he bet. was a wonderful co-chair. Yes. Monsignor John Rodano is currently the chair, but that probably won't continue after this year. Mm-hmm. So the dialogue will continue, but right. we'll probably have a shift of chairs there.
0: Okay. We're ready to go. Okay. Let's not indulge in small talk and get rid right to the heart of the matter. Um, let me just say a little bit about the direction of this. I'd like yeah. to spend some time just asking you to tell the story.
1: Uh huh.
0: I'd like to talk about, um, you know, some of the larger theological and religious and spiritual themes. In, in Azusa Street and, and the Pentecostal movement, mm-hmm. and, and I'd also like to spend some time at the end talking about, you know, what this means for today mm-hmm. and um questions and hopes and fears sure. that you have yeah. okay so um now i did you told me this years ago so i know it's a wonderful story so um to, you know i'd like and i i um I don't know if you've heard my program. It's on on Sunday afternoons here. But it's on all over the country. So we're actually producing this show this week from Los Angeles, which is something we've never done before.
1: So it will air on Sunday, huh? It will
0: start in Rochester, New York on Thursday afternoon. Wow. It will be in New York City three times on the weekend next weekend, in Washington twice, all over the country. It's in 150 cities, and it ends in Atlanta on Wednesday night. Wow. So... um, uh, I don't know why I started telling you that. But anyway, so so we're very excited to be here. Great. And um and this is going to be, you know, we Doing an hour on this, and mm-hmm. it's going to be great for public great. radio audiences. I feel wonderful. But I remember um, asking you ten years ago. Oh, this is how I started because all my interviews, from interviewing a physicist or you know a Buddhist leader, yeah. I asked people to talk about the religious background of their childhood. Oh, and I know you have a great story. So, did t- <laughs> what's
1: my great story? Well, t- what do you remember? What from I
0: remember. <laughs> Is it your mother and your father were both? Yes. Weren't they both ordained? Yeah. Okay, so right. tell me. So and Okay, where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I grew up uh, between uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of my parents were ministers with the Assemblies of God. My mother received her credentials, I think, in 1941, and uh, my father the following year. And uh, both of them were church planters. Uh, my mother founded a church in Sausalito, California, which is now the big Assembly of God in San Rafael, and uh, my father uh, worked as an associate in Stockton and uh, then pastored in uh, Bellevue, Washington, and uh, San Leandro, California, and then they moved to Las Vegas in 1954, Okay, and there they pastored uh, the only Pentecostal church in town at that time, I think, the Trinity Assembly of God, and later on established a second church there for the Assemblies of God.
0: Um, And it is remarkable to think about the middle of the 20th century, and your mother is really a pastor... In the same way, with the same kind of authority um, as your father. Is that right? Yes.
1: Uh, you know, but that's, uh, it's, it's a little bit stunning at one level, and yet at another level within the Pentecostal tradition. Right.
0: It's only stunning if you're looking at it through our cultural lens. Exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly within the Pentecostal tradition, we have ordained or credentialed women right almost from the beginning. Uh, I would say, from the beginning, actually, it depends on the group that you're they're with. Some did it a little bit later, some have never done it, but the vast majority have simply said, Well, if uh, Joel the prophet's uh, talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh, it includes men and women uh we can't uh, we can't stop a woman from doing what the Lord has asked her to do, so right. that's what we 've done
0: right um, Do you remember when you first heard about Azusa Street and the Azusa Street revival?
1: You know, I have vague uh, memories of uh, someone mentioning it when I might have been about six or seven years old. But where it really impacted me was when I went away to college. I think I was 17 at the time, and I settled in a church in San Jose California, and there were uh, two or three people who had been to the Azusa Street Mission, and I remember them standing up and testifying in a church on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, and uh, and uh, tears billowing over, and, and it was really an emotional thing, and it really touched my heart in a way that, uh, at that time, it grabbed me, but I didn't expect it to grab me for a lifetime. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and when you first came to Pasadena, was it in 1970? That's correct. You have written that you also... Um, came to know and be in conversation with some of the original participants of Azusa Street. That's also correct, yes. Uh I
1: probably met a dozen of them uh, or so uh, through the years. But in 1970, there were not a lot of them around, and I got to be friends with about four of them uh, Mm -hmm. fairly well.
0: Mm -hmm. And did they also... Shed a different kind of light on your understanding of those events.
1: Well, it's, it's one of those events that uh, seems to have grabbed everyone that was ever associated with it. And they all had an incredible passion about it. Uh, they all loved to talk uh, with me about it. Some of them I managed to get this on. This is
0: 66 years later. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it really is an amazing uh, yeah. story when you stop and think of it. Uh, but, but every one of them simply wanted to tell that story as much as possible, and it gave me an opportunity to ask them all kinds of questions. Some of them I actually got on tape, and that was, that was very nice, but at that time I didn't have the uh, finances to be able to do anything more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So let's, let's trace a little bit of the story, um, and I think I'd start with, the f- well, William Joseph Seymour, who's the founder, but he, he started studying, he's the son of slaves, that's correct. And spe- actually and was reared Catholic mm-hmm. and um, and uh, was taught by Charles Fox. How do you, do you say Parham? Parham. Parham yes, uh-huh. in Topeka, Kansas, who founded the Apostolic Faith Movement. Um, it seems to me um, Parham was a. A figure of the holiness movement, with his kind of quintessential critique of the church that had gone right. what worldly, formalistic, right. complacent. Exactly. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, he had this theory that he pursued of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, wh- tell me what that was about. What grabbed his attention that then, you know, was passed on to William Seymour. Right.
1: And, uh- Charles Parham had been a Methodist, and uh, there were a lot of Methodists that were uh, concerned about the direction that the Methodist Church was going at that particular time. There, there was a, a move towards a very optimistic view of history, uh, a move toward what would become the liberalism of the of the 20th century, and uh, there were a lot of folk in the rural heartland that just could not identify with that. They, they had no ability to... Uh, have have a relationship with uh, people in government for instance they didn't have high finances uh, most of them were not uh, highly educated people. They were really kind of cut off from society.
0: When you say an optimistic view of history, what's wrong with that? What was wrong with that well, for them?
1: Well, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh, it, what, but but it was so op- it was it was absolutely the opposite of what a lot of people in the rural heartland were feeling at that time. Okay. There was a very pessimistic. It was contrary way. to their experience. Precisely. You okay. know, they, some of them were losing their farms. Their kids would go away to. Uh, the city to to get jobs they would go to colleges they'd come home with these strange and foreign ideas Uh, they just felt like they were losing control of of where life was and so you know in one sense it produces the fundamentalist movement in another sense it produces the pentecostal movement and of course it produces i think the modern liberal tradition uh within within historic christianity so uh those are all coming in play but but Parham had been touched by two kind of radical folk, one of them John Alexander Dowie, who had established a utopian community up in Zion, Illinois, okay. and the other, Frank Sanford, who had established another community in Shiloh, Maine. And uh, the two of them had uh, been preaching certain aspects of what we would call holiness doctrine, which was certainly compatible with uh, Methodism at the time and uh uh they they uh, uh, Dowie really thought that it was possible to have uh, an isolated christian community uh which was self sustaining okay. uh and sh- uh in Shiloh Frank Sanford thought that world mission should be something that was accomplished in this generation uh, that was a very common theme also among okay. in missionary circles in the evangelical movement so um he He's heavily impacted by these two men, but it is Frank Sanford who is suggesting that eventually God is going to restore all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the ability to speak in tongues and prophesy and perform miracles, and that it will be used for evangelistic purposes. Um, Parham buys into that whole idea, and he identifies it with this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Let me just back up and say that within The Christian faith, especially within the evangelical side of the Christian faith, and certainly within Methodism at the time, there was this sense that one needed to have a personal experience of conversion. Sometimes it's called a born-again experience, but there are other ways of describing it. Um, And then within the more radical wing of the Methodist church, the more conservative wing, there was a tendency to talk about holiness. This was something that John Wesley had talked about uh, in and terms what did of, they
0: mean? What was that?
1: Well, what they meant was that you could have an experience of God in which God would touch your heart and soul in such a way that it would eradicate the very sin nature that you had. In other words, your propensity... Uh, to uh, always go in a sinful direction could be overcome so in this experience. So this was experience. not
0: the depravity of kind of calvinist. No, it Presbyterian isn't. It's it, it, a, it a different theology altogether. It's a of completely, kind of human nature.
1: That's correct. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I mean you may start out in this depraved condition, you know, everything has been touched by by sin. Uh, but that there was a point in time that one could be perfected uh, mm-hmm. or sanctified, as they would say. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, that meant spending time at the altar and you'd come away with tears or uh, feelings of euphoria uh, that they often identified with divine love or something like that. They expected um, that, that that would transform the way one lived, that that one would become a gentle soul, a humble soul, and, and so forth, uh, giving evidence of what might be called the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Yeah. Peace, I was interested to suffering. see
0: because we we think of Pentecostalism mm-hmm. associated with the, uh, the the moment in Acts with the right. tongues of fire and the speaking in tongues, but um, but Charles Parham was really focusing initially on this sweep uh, this important passage in First Corinthians twelve mm-hmm. through fourteen, and I you know I just revisited that as yes. I was thinking about meeting you know, again, and that's there's so much in there. Yes, um, you know as you say it is. Um, diversities of activities, right. um, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, um, the faith, the gift of healing, mm-hmm. um, the working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. And then that passage goes on to, to give this pivotal image of the body of Christ, which has all different kinds of gifts and manifestations and functions. Right and it goes into 1st Corinthians 13 which is about love.
1: Yeah, that's right. The guiding And the principle. primacy mm-hmm. of
0: love. So it's really a very large vision. Yes, um, it is. when that gifts of the spirit contains mm-hmm. a lot of big ideas.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And that's really what uh, Charles Parham was uh, was uh, was about. I mean, he there there was a whole there were a whole range of groups that developed in the 19th century uh, that uh, thought that because things were beginning to turn downward, they, were, they had this pessimistic view that the only way change was going to come would be with a return or a divine intervention of God, and uh, he was very much committed to that uh, idea, and so what happens is you you end up saying, "Well, if there are all these people out there and God is going to, or the Lord is going to return uh, they 're going to be caught with, uh, without uh, hope." And so it's our job to get out there and and lead them into some kind of a salvation experience and so forth. We need power for that. Hmm. And that's what baptism in the Spirit was all about. Many of the holiness people who preach sanctification call that experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit. What Parham did was take it one step further and say, no, that isn't the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That is sanctification. But baptism Uh in the Spirit is power that comes on the sanctified life. And the way you know that is if... This gift or sign of the of, of speaking in tongues okay. accompanies it okay, and those tongues uh, in his theory at least uh, would would uh, tell you if you could identify what those tongues were, it would tell you where you were going to spend your time doing your evangelization and missionary work
0: right this was not um, s- speaking in tongues that were otherworldly, but in fact these their idea, as happened in the Acts of the Apostles, um, in in the Book of Acts, right. um, was about speaking actual languages, human languages, that allowed that's you to connect with other cultures and share correct. the good news.
1: That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Charles Parham uh, was very cautious at identifying such languages. I mean, in one sense, he's cautious. I mean, you have to stop and think that most Americans don't know any more than one language. And certainly those who... <laughs> especially Americans. Yes, but, especially Americans. Yeah. And, uh, and especially those who have never gone to college or uh, been, you know, pressed in that direction. So, you know, we're talking about amateurs identifying languages. You know, yeah. they might say, well, I have the gift of Africa. Well, what is that? You know, there are hundreds of uh, or reading about one woman
0: uh, who believed that she had been given Hindustani and yes. then went to India.
1: Yeah. Right, exactly.
0: Um, and then, in, among that group which where Charles Parham was teaching and William Seymour was in mm-hmm. the group, then there's a woman named Agnes Osman, who, yes. in fact, is recorded as the first person to speak in tongues. Right. And is, I don't know, I've, I've seen different dates for this, but I think you cited it as the last day of the first year of the 20th century, yes, December 31st, correct. 1901. Right. And, you know, what do we know about, was that something that none of them had experienced before, the way she spoke in tongues?
1: Yes, it was, actually. Um, you know, and, you know, I can look at it as a 21st century Pentecostal uh, historian, and I can I can ask questions about it that they couldn't ask. But certainly they expected it, that it was some kind of a language. And, in fact, they identified it, if I remember correctly, as, a, as Chinese um, some Chinese language. And, and, and the Topeka, Kansas newspapers uh, carried that uh, uh, and actually uh, h- had quite a bit of coverage on that for the first few days.
0: I think that, you know, this, this notion of speaking in tongues is perhaps um, – <clears throat> well, at the time was most – in both intriguing and frightening and strange Surely. to outsiders, and to this day, I would say right. um, if people associate Pentecostalism with speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. this is the most exotic and strange and <laughs> frightening. Aspect of I mean okay you grew up in the late 20th century as a Pentecostal Assemblies of God which is the major one of the I think the largest denomination that grew out of Azusa Street yeah
1: that's right if you're thinking about it globally Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. and
0: so it was speaking in tongues um, a routine part of of your worship life or of what you understood to be um, religious life
1: well yes I would say uh, it certainly was part of the of the larger package that uh, Pentecostals always urged people to go on and uh, engage God in such a way that God would touch them in this way. Uh, And so uh, the expectation was that if you're going to be a real Pentecostal, you must have this baptism in the Spirit. And if you're going to have that baptism in the Spirit the way we know you are a real Pentecostal is if you speak in these other tongues. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one sense, I suppose it is exotic. Uh, it, It certainly is not something... That modernity uh, and scientific method and so forth would look at that and say, "Well, you know, that's uh, that's something that we can all work toward, or or uh, we can we can we can reproduce that scientifically in this, these sorts of ways." Uh, no, I think it, it's much more subjective than that in, at one level, and and yet uh, it's built out of a relationship that one has with God. Uh, and if you think about God as another person, in a sense, you know, that, that is that it is possible to have a personal relationship with that God, you're really talking about how does that uh, encounter with God affect you. And it seems to me that you can look at that psychologically, you can look at it anthropologically, you can look at it in a whole range of ways and say there are possible answers to that. And I think psychologists and and uh, anthropologists have done a lot of work on that in recent years. Uh, and, uh, and and many of them come out with much more positive uh, assessment of it than than what was in the past. But what I would say is that it it is not it's not a learned behavior in one sense of the word, and it can in a sense it, I suppose it could be understood as a learned behavior in that you are in the midst of a people. There is there is peer pressure, uh, those kinds of things. But so many of the testimonies come when people are by themselves. Oh. You know, I was washing dishes at the sink and, and I was just praising the things. Lord. And all of a sudden I, I I started to speak or sing out loud and I couldn't understand what I was saying. Huh. And some of them would go on for hours doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it, it, isn't, it doesn't require a group. It mm-hmm. simply requires an encounter with the divine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would call that or look at that as a kind of transrational form of speech. In other words, it bypasses the mind. The person who is actually speaking in the tongue doesn't know what he or she is saying, uh, but given the the readings from first Corinthians twelve through fourteen that you cited, uh, we understand it to be some form of language that is inspired by the spirit that god understands
0: mm-hmm. so it did it did evolve within the movement <clears throat> to be that kind of personal communion between. The person who is speaking in tongues, receiving that gift, and it's kind of part of their relationship with God, as opposed necessarily to a potential relationship with another country. Uh, uh, I mean, yes, I know it, there it, is that global it, part of It's a both ends yes. It's a both ends Yes, right. that's correct. Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and I think that you talked about evolution there in terms of the process of understanding this. You know, you have to think about this for just for a minute. Uh, most churches at the time did not think that such things were even possible In anymore. the early
0: 20th century. In the earliest, mm-hmm. Early
1: 20th century. Mm-hmm. Did not think that such things were any longer possible. They would look at the book of Acts and they'd say, yes, it happened then, It happens no longer. It was necessary in the first generation, or it was necessary uh, during the lives of the apostles, or it was necessary before we had a a canon of Scripture, which would be 2nd, 3rd century, uh, or it was necessary for some other period, but it's not necessary for ours. We've grown Mm -hmm. past that, and so you have to think about this either symbolically Uh, in the first century or literally in the first century but no longer applicable. And uh, so for this to burst upon the scene is really surprising for many of them. And there's a great deal of consternation about that, a considerable concern about uh, whether these people are actually doing something that's genuinely spiritual or whether it is some kind of fanaticism. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a pastor here in L.A. at the time who preaches and and calls what's going on at the Azusa Street Mission um, a combination of African voodoo superstition and Caucasian insanity. Right. And this is part of the Caucasian (laughs) insanity or the African voodoo superstition, whichever Mm -hmm. way you want to look at it.
0: But you know something that you bring out in your book that's very interesting is that um, there are these there's the phenomenon of speaking in tongues which is connected to you know dreams and visions i mean yes. there's a lot that's going on that has kind of a mystical sensibility about mm-hmm. it, and you point out that there are those images also in the Hebrew Bible right. um, as well as in the New Testament right. and also in african spirituality Surely. and a lot of the founders of this movement, and William Seymour himself were African-American. Right. And, uh, you know, that glossolalia, which is the, the technical term for speaking in tongues, also had some precedence in ancient Greece. So this, this is also part of human experience in yes. a way.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, Pentecostals w- would like to theologize about this in keeping with Acts and 1 Corinthians. Uh, but I think that Pentecostals also have to expand their vision and look at this as a human phenomenon as much as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the ways that I try to talk about it in, in my book is to, is to think about it in terms of this encounter in which uh, the closer we get, the more we have an inability to describe what it is that we're experiencing. In other words, we can start with ordinary language and say, well, you know, I was praying at such and such a time, or I was in this room, or I was sitting in this seat, or I was on the floor, or whatever it was. Uh, And then suddenly I find that most of these testimonies move to some kind of metaphor. You know, well, it was kind of like this, it was kind of like that, you know, Uh, like I had a big pipe fitted to my head, and and, and all of a sudden I felt this rush of hot oil, or I felt water bubbling up, or, you know, something like that. Uh, And then the next thing you know, they're speaking in a tongue, babbling, if you would, uh, incoherent to ordinary people sitting around them. And uh, it, 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 it strikes me as being somewhat similar to the experience that John the Revelator has uh, uh, in uh, the book of Revelation in chapter 1, you know, where, where the risen Christ appears to him. And he says, you know, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I fell down as one who was dead. You know, one of the common things in in uh, Pentecostalism, was that people did in fact fall on the floor? They were that- what we call slain in the spirit, right. or resting in the spirit, or something like that. And uh, and and then he says, uh, and I turned, and I and you know, I heard this voice that I recognized. I turned, and uh, here was this person. Uh, you know who was like, and then he goes into this metaphorical description of who the risen Christ is. You know, with this tongue that what looks was like the a move a certain... from prose to poetry. Yes, yes I mean yes. We,
0: always, we encounter the limits of language in many yes, forms in yes. in life.
1: Yes, hmm. so uh, I, I think there's a, a big parallel there theologically, but I, it doesn't surprise me uh, at all. I mean, we are human beings, and I don't think we have plumbed the depths of our psychology or our anthropology. Uh, that in fact we're very complex and uh, I'm not at all surprised that we can be touched in these in these sorts of ways and that it could be looked at scientifically mm-hmm. uh, as much as anything.
0: Hmm. Something quite remarkable about that gathering that began on Azusa Street in mm-hmm. 1906 was how uh, incredibly diverse it was. I mean, that's kind of a cold, you know, yes. modern word, but it was... Uh, a vast spectrum of hum- humanity in a time when African-Americans and white people and, I don't know, prostitutes and community leaders and men and women, I mean, it was cl- all classes and races and genders, and they were all empowered. Right. And they were to- empowered together. Right. And, and um, I don't know, in our time that couldn't happen everywhere, but it was quite unusual in 1906.
1: Well, in 1906, uh, it certainly was unusual. I mean, the, the U.S. I mean, almost was... Almost
0: impossible, I think, in, in, unthinkable then.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many places within the U.S., uh, you know, states and local communities were governed by Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. which kept people apart, uh, black and white in Is that, particular. Was that true
0: in Los Angeles as It well? was not
1: true in Los Angeles, hmm. you see. So that was unique. I mean, you know, there was prejudice and discrimination and, and, and racism going on in Los Angeles and at the time. And that came
0: out in the newspaper reports of this gathering that you quote in your book, literally. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it's right. all there. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's right. And and so there are these underlying feelings that are anti-black. But the real racism and discrimination in L.A. at the time is against Mexican-Americans on the one hand who were at the very bottom of the totem pole. Uh, And the Chinese and Japanese who had been brought over here to build the railroads in the West. uh, And, uh, you know, they couldn't own property. They couldn't bring in their spouses or families and and so forth. There was a huge amount of discrimination that that went right on up into the middle of the 20th century. So uh, this was really unusual to find all of these kinds of people worshiping together. Uh, It was part of the vision, I think, um, that maybe uh, goes back to Parham, but I think much more clearly goes to, to William Seymour, who studied with Parham for about five weeks in uh, Houston, Texas area in uh, early 1906. When he came out here, though, he came out here with this vision, Seymour did, of uh, establishing a congregation that was, in fact, multi-ethnic, multi-racial. And uh, the way he helped to you know, bring this vision together was when that church opened its doors, he placed the pulpit right in the middle of the room. Hmm. Now that pulpit was not a formal pulpit like we would see in a in a mainstream church, but it was a couple of, of wooden boxes stacked on top of one another. And he actually would kneel down in there or sit there with his head inside the one box, you know, praying while everything was going on around him. In other words, the seats in the in the congregation were in a circle so that everybody had somebody to look at. And it provided a real opportunity for conversation back and forth. One of the things that I find interesting is that uh, some of those conversations uh, got to be uh, quite uh, heated. Uh, the, you, know, the, y- you have to th- stop and think. If the churches on the whole think that this is something that is past, that nothing like this has taken place, there are no books that Seymour can go to and say, how do you set up and develop a Pentecostal church? There, There are no uh, uh, places that he can go, no seminars that he can attend no self help kinds of things he 's on his own right it 's experimentation, every service is an experiment, and what he has as his text is his bible and ho- so he can expect those kinds of things to break in, but what those mean and how they 're to be interpreted is really up for debate
0: I also think you know um, it, it's very it, 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 it sounds very appealing in a way to modern sensibility some of the way they promoted themselves. You know, this is not about building churches or right. building buildings, collecting ties. Someone said, oh, L- Los Angeles record, did they say? No. You know, no collections taken, no bills uh, bills posted, no church or organization is in back of it.
1: That's correct. It was,
0: uh, an, a, it was driven by human beings searching for God, or exactly. as you say, with the, just with the Bible and the pulpit.
1: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it attracted people in part uh, because it was so unique, uh, but also because um, there were so many connections with various networks of people, uh, not only in the city, but around the country. And
0: uh, Again, it was organic and it was human. It wasn't institutional.
1: No, no, it was not institutional. There yeah. was no institution as such. Right. Uh, I think... Uh, Seymour saw himself as having a direct relationship with Charles Parham, but Parham was 1,500 miles away in Houston, Texas, and there was not another Pentecostal church between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, so here he is very much on his own, and he's an African-American. You know, they're very much a minority within the city of L.A. at the time. I think there were 238,000 people in L.A., 5,400 of whom were African-American. And the vast majority of African-Americans in L.A. at that time are middle class or above uh, they're well educated. They're property owners. They're uh, involved in uh, uh, government uh, positions. Uh, they're in the police department, the fire department. Schools are integrated. You don't. It's not the kind of LA that you s- think about today, which is what fifty percent Latino and and, and right. a lot of poor right. people. Right. Right. <clears throat> but uh, yeah. oh, so, but anyways, you did, you, you, you did describe
0: it as body. Whether you had this description of LA yeah, uh-huh. at the time, which raw, rugged body and eclectic, yes. which I thought would still work in Yes,
1: yes, it would in in many respects. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh but but it, it it has to be seen as a boom town you know where mm-hmm. where things are just ready to take off really starting to take off and and they they are taking off because there's a great deal of optimism on the west coast i mean we're opening up the pacific rim the long beach uh, san pedro port is really under construction already uh it, they have just within the last 2 years have have had 4 transcontinental railroads uh, attach them to the rest of the nation. And in 1906, Henry Huntington finishes his streetcar system, the Pacific Electric System, which uh, connects everything in Los Angeles to all the outlying suburbs. So you know, for uh, 10 cents or so, you can go to Pasadena or Monrovia or Santa Ana or down to Long Beach or whatever. It's very inexpensive and no house is further than three blocks from any streetcar. Hmm. So transportation is just an incredible gift, in a sense, to to these people who are coming and these people are all in transition L.A. is getting three thousand people a month uh, into the city. Uh, and, uh, at that
0: time, the whole population was what a couple hundred thousand,
1: 238,000. Yeah. -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, build the building industry, the, the land development industry, uh, Huntington, of course, owns a lot of, of, of beachfront property all along all the, all the beach towns, Redondo beach and so forth. He's, he's out there developing that and sending his streetcars out so that people can get to it. Uh, it's, it's really quite a, quite a Positive scene in a sense, but it makes possible then the expansion of this ministry right from the start. I see. So within days of the time that they begin, they are holding meetings on Monday mornings with leaders within this congregation, saying, "Where do we go next? Who do we send? Uh, how many people do we need to get this started, and so forth?" And as you as you look at the end of each one of these streetcar lines, another church springs up within three to five months. Huh.
0: So. The height of this revival, the real the real core of the revival happened over three years. And yes. And I think you say sometimes on, on a Sunday there could be 1,500 people there. As is many as right? 1,500. Which is, again, a lot of people in 1906. When you talk about what happened there, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm I'm curious about, you know, within your church or within your family, you know, mm-hmm. how would you tell your children how you understand what happened there?
1: Well, you know, we use a lot of jargon, obviously, but, uh, you know, we would say that the Holy Spirit uh, visited this place, touched people's hearts and lives. When they had been touched in the way that we talk about it, in terms of baptism in the Holy Spirit, they were utterly transformed. That is, once you have been touched by God at such a, a deep level, right down to the tongue that you speak and your ability to speak the language that you've been trained in all of your life, leaves you, there is no turning back. And I think that what that did was it produced a lot of what we would call witnesses, people that can tell the story of what God did to me, and they are passionate and they are uh, believable because they have, in fact, had an encounter that's very real to them, and they communicate that. The way we would look at it is it's consistent not only with Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit is poured out, but also with Jesus' expectation in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that if you go to Jerusalem, you wait for this power or this promise of the Father, uh, then you will be my witnesses in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So we see that as a consistent kind of compelling uh, experience uh, that makes it possible for people Uh, to live differently, uh, empowered to do things that they couldn't on their own do, Mm -hmm. Uh, which was, uh, I suppose, to exercise faith in the ability. I mean, many of these people left Los Angeles with a one-way ticket. They either expected the Lord to return or they expected that they would die in a foreign land or in some other place. It didn't bother them. They weren't worried about a mission board sending them and taking care of them. Uh, they weren't worried about health insurance. They weren't worried about anything. They just said, "God has given me this. I have to tell somebody." And uh, they went all over the world doing that.
0: Um, and they have they did plant the seeds for what is now, I think, undoubtedly the most important and largest religious movement to have originated in this country. I, I, yes, I, I would think say that, uh, that is a just a yes. just a fair statement. Um.
1: I mean, none of them would have expected that, the no, numbers right. <laughs> uh, that have emerged around the world as a result right. of, of their Or that there would be a hundred
0: Pentecostal denominations now and charismatic and Pentecostal movements within every uh, denomination.
1: Absolutely. It would never cross their mind.
0: Um, you know, when I did look back at Acts 2, which is this pivotal story that uh-huh. they felt they were kind of reenacting, recreating, or right. re-experiencing uh, 2,000 years later, um, one line jumped out I mean this is where uh, this is um, the various followers of Jesus are there and mm-hmm. they suddenly begin to sp- and many other people from many other cultures and they suddenly begin to st- the tongues of fire you tell the story what happens in Acts 2
1: well uh, they're there I mean Jesus uh, tells them that they need to go to Jerusalem uh, and to wait until the promise of the father has come the promise being the spirit being poured out upon them And on that particular day, on the day of Pentecost, uh, suddenly the place is swept with the sound of wind and tongues of fire distributing itself on each of their heads, and uh, people begin to speak in other tongues. And these are languages that these uh, apostles, the 120 uh, actually gathered in that room, uh, have never learned. They don't know uh, them. And uh, then there are there are pilgrims within Jerusalem at the time who hear what's going on, and they begin to ask these questions, well, what is this? What what, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, here we have this uneducated person from up here in northern Galilee speaking a language that, how in the world did he figure that out, and so right. forth. And yet God is, is uh, you know, working with their hearts, helping them, uh, giving the, the opportunity uh, for, uh, for something to happen here by way of communicating what they're experiencing. Some of these people mock them and say, Well, these people, it's nine o'clock in the morning here, these people are still drunk. What in the world's going on? You <laughs> right. know, they had a, yes. a rowdy night. Yes. And Peter stands up and says, No, no, uh, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel told us would take place in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that at some point uh, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and it will come on your. Men and your women, your young folk, your old folk, your maid servants, your men servants. Uh, so it's going to cover class, it's going to cover gender, it's going to cover age, all these kinds of things. And these people are speaking in tongues as a result, as a clear evidence that this is in fact taking place. Now, Uh, that should point you back to the one who has come here, namely Jesus the Christ, uh, who has uh, brought the message of salvation. What are you going to do about it? And, of course, on the day of Pentecost, then thousands of people... become Christian as a result of this testimony that's based upon this experience of these folk speaking in other tongues. So there's, right even in in Acts chapter 2, there's this evangelistic expectation uh, that uh, is consistent with what we find in Los Angeles in 1906.
0: And, you know, here's the sentence that jumped out at me from looking at Acts 2, thinking about the Azusa Street Revival, the centennial today, and knowing that this has become a movement that has reached every corner of the globe, and this line, some of the people who were there in that story in Acts 2 um, from other places. And someone exclaimed, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful words of God. <laughs> and uh,
1: The wonderful works of God. The yes. wonderful works of God. Yes.
0: Uh-huh. Okay, in our own tongue. In our own and tongues. And now yeah. um, Pentecostal Christians are everywhere right. speaking every tongue. Um. Let me just, I want to look at what time we've gotten to make sure. Okay, look, uh, you have, um, I mean, I can, you know, I can give these statistics. They're just incredible. And also how it's not just Pentecostal denominations. Right. But in Africa, it's so many of the the mainline Christian denominations. I think this is what I want to talk about. Now, you have spent a lot of your scho- life of scholarship and your passion also reconnecting Pentecostal Christians up with the rest of the history yes. of the church. Uh-huh. They're kind of the fam- their family tree. They are, uh-huh. and I'd like for you to talk about that, about where this movement fits in what you understand as Surely. the large sweep of Christian history. Right. Um, yeah. Where does this Where does this come down? What 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 are the Yeah? Talk about the family tree, okay. the branches of the where Surely. you see this coming in.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, if you think about Christianity, I mean, you really are talking about two major streams of Christianity. There's an eastern stream and a western stream. Really, for the first millennium of the Christian existence, uh, there was essentially one church. Now, that didn't mean that everybody was exactly the same in every location. There were differences based upon regional experiences and histories and so forth and language and, and so forth. But there was a common church with a common table, if you would, uh, where the Eucharist was celebrated and everybody was recognized uh, ac- across the world uh, that was uh, uh, was in communion with, uh, say, the Bishop of Rome. Okay? In the 11th century, uh, there was a major split East and West, and the the East became what we know as Orthodox today, and that, of course, has varieties of families, I think 26 of them, uh, and then in the West, uh, things became what we know as Roman uh, and Catholic. Uh, that was fine until the 16th century when things began to split apart in, in radical ways. Uh, first of all, with Luther in Germany. Uh, secondly, I suppose, with uh, the Anabaptists, and, well, Reformed, uh, the Reformed folk in Switzerland and, and France and Calvin particular. and Swingley. Calvin, that's correct, uh-huh. Swingley. Uh, The Anabaptists, which uh, follow them, which would be people like the Mennonites with Simon Mennon up in uh, the Netherlands and so forth. And then uh, in England, with the Anglican tradition, you know, I will have my English church. It will be a slightly modified church, but but I will have an Anglicized church. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those are the four kind of major streams that come out of the Reformation. Those, of course, all splinter in a variety of ways, and Pentecostalism, can trace its movement from Catholicism through Anglicanism to the Methodist movement. And, and uh, you know, John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, was always an Anglican. He died he d-
0: understanding he d- himself to be an Anglican yes, exactly. even he started Methodism.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, Methodism, of course, was named for a variety of methods that he developed along with a group of his friends uh, that uh, talked about how to live the spiritual life, you know, and, and uh, Uh, When Methodism came to the United States then, it further uh, 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 fragmented. Uh, You you have now the United Methodist Church, which is the kind of historic mainline that comes out of that. But you also have a whole range of denominations that might be associated with what we call the Wesleyan Holiness Movement. Mm -hmm. That was really developed out of the more conservative side of Methodism, um, especially camp meeting associations and so forth. That, that was very popular on the frontier. As, as the frontier moved west, yeah. you had all of these holiness groups emerging. It's
0: something that I, that I think is so distinctive about the holiness movements that we don't necessarily have a cultural appreciation of is the strong emphasis on social justice, that the Seneca Falls meeting yes. about women's suffrage was held in a holiness church, Absolutely. that these were the original abolitionists. Yes, yes. And that the Salvation Army is in fact a wing or an expression of the Holiness movement. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: yeah. I, th- I think we should be very proud of of what the Holiness uh, movement has uh, produced in the United States, but around the world as well. I mean, as you say, the Salvation Army, of course, had its uh, its origins in Britain, uh, but you know, we've they've gone everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they probably haven't had as much success, they certainly haven't called it as much attention to themselves as Pentecostals have, who are their offspring. Well, in uh, some offspring. ways,
0: the Pente- holiness movement itself, I guess now, is relatively small, the kind it of is. formal expression of it. Um, but Pentecostalism has kind of carried some of its seeds forward in a big way, I, I guess. A
1: lot of its seeds uh-huh. in, in many respects, uh-huh. yes. Uh, I don't think that Pentecostals in the United States have done as good a job as the holiness movement did on the social justice issue. But they certainly have uh, done uh, things on issues related to race and women and uh, and, and so forth. So mm-hmm. you know, and, and also on compassionate ministries. I'd say you know, you, you, meaning you, you, uh, if you go down to Skid Row in Los Angeles, there are a number of missions there, many of which are Pentecostal in in their orientation. I mean, these mm-hmm. are the folk that I just heard of a new, another new one that's starting uh, as as of this week okay. uh, in in uh, the kind of Skid Row ministry. So.
0: I do have a sense, though, that part of what makes Pentecostalism take off globally um, is that appeal of um, sort of appealing to disenfranchised people. Yes. Whether they are women or, or I don't know, in, in Latin America, you know, Indians who've been marginalized. Right. Um, now, maybe that's more about this emphasis of equality that was on Azusa Street in 1906 of, of diversity writ large. Um,
1: well— I, I suppose so, uh, at least at one level. But you know, uh, I mean, Pentecostalism is, in a sense, a religion that is made for the people on the margins. Uh, you know, and why uh, is
0: that? Say something I, I,
1: I'm not quite sure why that is. I, you know, I, I would have to say part of it has to do with worldview. Uh, there, you know, we we tend to think um, uh, in elitist terms uh, most of our time. We t- and I, I talk to my students about. What does it mean to talk about feminism and the role that women play? Or what does it mean to be talking about post-modernity? You know, 90% of the world could care less about either one of those things. They're much more concerned about where they're going to get their next meal, how they're going to dress uh, for the day. Uh, I mean, do they have clothing enough? Do they have enough to heat their, their homes? Uh, what are they going to do that would help their children to have a better life than they have? And uh, in so many places in the world, you know, it's a conflict between good and evil, between good spirits and bad spirits and so forth. What Pentecostalism does that so many other groups have, have done is to take that kind of a worldview very, very seriously. Uh, you know, we talk about good spirits and evil spirits as well. We talk about the fact that that Christ came to break the chains of any kind of spiritual bondage, that exorcisms can take place, that, that these are expected and not simply something that are psychologically made up, and that we are so uh, modern that uh, we identify... Uh, the mnemonics simply in systems of injustice and so forth uh, hmm. th- th- that we personify them in a sense, and that means that there 's an appeal to at the grassroots for every person who 's under some kind of an oppressive system or in some kind of an oppressed situation. Then they look at this and they say aha there 's hope for me here
0: because it is a very liberating force very for much people, so. especially in um in the developing -hmm. developing world. I mean, let's talk about women, all right? Because we don't, in this country, associate, people I don't uh, think commonly associate, Pentecostalism and, let's say, feminism. No, that's right. Even though what you're describing to me, what we're talking about here that happened on Azusa Street, which is very few blocks away from us here, in 1906 was that Pentecostals were ordaining and um, uh, sanctioning the full ministry of women a hundred years ago. Yes. um, Half a century or more before some of the most liberal churches in this country – why do we not? Why is that not um, something that people know about Pentecostalism? And I know in other countries, women are very often drawn to Pentecostalism right. for this reason.
1: Well, not only uh, are they drawn to it, but they become, because they provide huge uh, leadership. Yes. Uh, in in this, I you know, I have to say that my mother played an enormous role, not only in my father's ministry, but in the lives of all of us kids. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, It wasn't that she gave up one kind of life to to get another, but that she juggled the two of them uh, along the way. Uh, I would say that um, a lot of people uh, have poo-pooed the kind of uh, things that Pentecostals do in large part because they've been afraid. Uh, I mean, there's an enormous amount of fear about this kind of unexplainable, inexplicable uh, stuff, like speaking in tongues, and all these expectations of miracles. And what if they don't happen? You know, if you get only the kind of modern mindset, you know, uh, that you can only get to point uh, C by going through point A and point B, uh, then I can understand why you would not take very seriously what's going on here. Uh, and and I dare say that those who have controlled the teaching of history, and religious history in particular in the United States. I mean, it's very difficult to find in any major history of the United States any real treatment of Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, most seminary students today...
0: Which is incredible, given its global importance. Given its
1: global importance, yes, it it is incredible oversight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my hope with this book is to to help Mm -hmm. to try to change the idea of, of how that is being taught in our schools.
0: But is, for example, this empowerment of women within Pentecostalism, um, is that as much a part of the movement now in this country as it was 100 years ago? You know, and a, if it, not, why not?
1: It's a good question. Uh, it's a real mix of things right now, and it, it, it frankly quite it worries me quite a bit. Um, you know, I think the feminist movement did a great deal of good, not only for the nation as a whole, but for mainstream historic churches in particular, because it did, in fact – Provide them with the opportunities, equal opportunity in the pulpit. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, we had that already. But what happens is that uh, the feminist movement, I think, has identified too broadly with a variety of other movements that Pentecostals cannot identify with. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, personal uh, rights. You know, uh, the abortion issue, uh, uh, the gay issue, all of those kinds of things kind of got identified in. Uh, relationship to the uh, feminist movement in ways that Pentecostals had very difficult time uh, looking at. So there are now some people within the Pentecostal tradition who say we shouldn't be doing this because it identifies us with the feminist movement, the modern feminist movement. Instead of looking at their roots and saying, wait a minute, we got this from the Bible and we can still be who we are and we can we can have real feminists within the Pentecostal tradition, which uh, it shouldn't be necessary if they're equal in, in every aspect. There should be no necessity to, you know, in a sense lift up women here because uh, they founded denominations. Look at Amy Sepul McPherson is a great example. Right, right.
0: 1920s. Uh, yes, exactly.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, Florence Crawford in 1907, 1908 uh, establishes the Apostolic Faith Mission in Portland, Oregon, and so forth. So we, you know, we have this history, but we don't know our history well enough. We are very historical If you, if you, we're constantly looking toward that the also future. Also makes you and, very American.
0: I yes, it does. No and is American religion invented in America after yeah. all? I want to come back, and I think this is related to. Um, your description of the history of Christianity and uh-huh. that, that there were in fact three streams of the Reformation, and that Pentecostals came yeah. out of the yeah, but right, uh, but not it wasn't just a, it wasn't just you know Luther versus Catholicism no, no, right no. and no. that Pentecostals actually came out of that Anglican tradition that's correct uh-huh. and um, I'm sure that you're aware of this I'm very aware in media in this country that uh, the words Pentecostal evangelical and fundamental are often interchanged yes yes. But in fact, those are very three very different theological very different and spiritual yes, streams that streams. came out of those different, uh, and let's say if it is a family tree, those are mm-hmm, different mm-hmm, branches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, how would you describe, um, just clarify, make that distinction okay. between evangelical, Pentecostal, and fundamentalist? Right. What for you as a Pentecostal is important? Um,
1: well, I think uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, it, it, Evangelicalism, in, in a sense, is a certain form of fundamentalism. It, it, it's, it's broader. It has more of a social conscience. Uh, it's much more at home accepting uh, uh, evidence coming from social scientific studies and so forth. So, And it feels quite comfortable. I, I would say, in a sense, it's, it's the nice side of... Uh, uh, or the gracious side of fundamentalism. It's not fundamentalist in that it's you know the hard nose kind of stuff that you read about in the 1920s or, or that H.L. Mencken talks about. Necessarily
0: literal and literal not, interpretation no. of the Bible. N- not necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Mm-hmm.
1: But so if you th- if you really go back to two strands, that is, one being fundamentalist and one being Pentecostal, the fundamentalists tend to be much more rationalistic. They tend to have Formed uh, from more reformed traditions, not completely or or totally from uh, the Presbyterian and Reform kinds of traditions, but they have been heavily influenced by that. There is a tendency to talk about real literalism that has to be stacked up rationally in such a way that everything connects, you know, and if one block falls, the whole castle falls down as well. So you have to have this kind of strong tendency toward the inerrancy of Scripture, toward the the, the literal interpretation of Scripture, and all of these blocks must fit together. With Pentecostals, there's much more flexibility. They, they really reflect kind of the Wesleyan side of things, where rationality is not the end to, to, mm-hmm. to beat all. Uh, we we have a certain tendency to think that rationality is not necessarily good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, I, I, I can't tell you how many sermons I've sat through where people know I have a PhD and they can look down there and they will talk about uh, the fact that you can't trust seminaries and you can't trust universities and and so forth because they're ungodly or they teach ungodly ideas and I kind of squirm and I groan and I say, well, that's not the whole story either, you know, because I'm a good Pentecostal and I'm educated. And that's kind of an
0: anti-intellectual frontier mentality. It is a a frontier mentality. My understanding Uh is that as Pentecostalism has grown, Uh um, it is developing an Intellectual tradition it I mean it's developing A sense of history You're a big part of that Yes What does that mean How will that change What Pentecostalism is And what influence it has As well, we move forward You know there's There are some estimates There will be a One billion Pentecostals In the world by 2025
1: And that's quite possible I suppose So I, how
0: will they Will they be different
1: uh, You know Every group goes through What some church growth experts Have talked about As a, a process of What they call Redemption and lift uh, what that means is that when they make the transition and they're converted to this idea, there are certain things that change in lifestyle, certain things that change in expectations. One of them is they usually get a little bit more money. Uh, you know, they stop uh, womanizing or smoking or drinking or you know, spending gambling and doing all those kinds of things. They save their money. They start giving to causes. Uh, they, they, they can add a room onto their house. They can send their kids to college and so forth. Part of that means, then, that we're upwardly mobile, that the class is changing from lower uh, or blue-collar. Not,
0: maybe not necessarily so much on the margins. And so yes. The margin. it, it's moving okay.
1: more into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, expectations change. Uh, uh, people are becoming more educated. Uh, I, I dare say that in my local congregation – I mean, we have – uh... we have attorneys we have educators we have uh... medical doctors and so forth where uh... my pastor uh... has a college education and uh... he's very well uh... Mm self-taught uh... but but uh, but the people surpass him in, in terms of their educational uh, standards. But we have established in the last uh, 25 years uh, seminaries in the Church of God in Christ, the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, uh, which means we're now moving into graduate education. And that's going to change things. Right. I don't care how you cut it.
0: Like, it's kind of like the evolution of the, Bap- the Anabaptists yes, who yes. were radicals right. and, uh, but moved more into mainstream. And I know that you were the uh, – Co-chair of the International Vatican Pentecostal Dialogues. Right. I remember speaking with the um, former Roman Catholic co-chair of those dialogues, Father and Killian he told McDonald. me, Killian mm-hmm. McDonald, Father Killian McDonald, told me that when they first started, was that in the nineteen sixties?
1: It was uh, seventy-two.
0: Seventy-two. Um, there were no Pentecost. They they could hardly find Pentecostals with scholarly credentials. Exactly. And that now, they're coming from. Harvard and the best universities
1: in right. Peru
0: and England and uh, Asia and
1: uh, that's correct. We just had mm-hmm. a meeting of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. You know, I mean, right. we, that was founded in 1970, mm-hmm. uh, and it, I remember joining it in about 1975 or so. And you know, the meetings you might have 25 people there, and it was really a stretch to think that most of them were scholars. Uh, we had a meeting about a month ago in Pasadena. We had 350 people there. It just scratches the surface mm-hmm. of, of the kind of scholarship, the level, and, and the numbers that are involved in that these days.
0: I want to ask you maybe just two more questions Surely. quickly. How do you, um, let's see. Okay, so, but as you say, you know, theologically and in the, in the, in this, on the this spectrum of of Christian tradition and theology, Pentecostalism values experience mm-hmm. and the the individual believer's direct experience and communion with God, which may which may veer from doctrine. I mean that experience trumps, right? Trumps. Uh, uh,
1: well, I, I wouldn't say that we want to talk about experience being irrational. And, no, no. And, and certainly, doctrine is based in rationality. But mm-hmm. uh, but yes, there are times when uh, doctrines have changed based upon. Uh, "Quote new revelation or mm-hmm. or new light or uh, you know something like that."
0: Yeah. You know? um, so you but,
1: the, the, can I give you an example? You know, yes. I mean, my involvement in the in the Vatican Pentecostal dialogue uh, really came about as a result of a dream or a vision that I received in the middle of the night. Okay. Uh, you know, my denomination uh, at that time had bylaws that prohibited. Well. Prohibit is too strong. But certainly uh, I was open to possible discipline uh, uh, by engaging in any kind of ecumenical relations in any kind of formal setting. And uh, and yet when I was called on the carpet, in a sense, and uh, asked to sit before the executive presbyters and tell my story, share where this vision came from and what I thought it meant and the kind of fruit that had come out of it, Uh, They took a vote, Uh, uh, and uh, that vote sustained the ministry that I'm involved in, even though the bylaws basically said you shouldn't be doing these kinds of things.
0: And what was that dream and that calling? What was you felt called to do? Uh, Why was it important?
1: Well, at that particular time, I had been uh, uh, elected president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. It was in 1982, and uh, I was really struggling with what to talk about. Uh, I, I was concerned about... A particular split between an older group and a younger group of scholars and how they didn't value one another and i I had been praying and asking God, uh, please help me to give a word that will bring um, some sense of uh healing in this in this rift within the society. And uh, you know, I was awakened in the middle of the night uh, with uh, Jesus standing at the end of my bed, saying to me, "Mel, I want you to talk about ecumenism." And I and I said, "You know, Lord, I is reaching out
0: to other churches. Yeah, I don't know
1: anything about this, and how is this relevant? You know, I went back to sleep." And he woke me up again with the same words on the same night saying, I want you to speak about ecumenism. And I said, Lord, you know what our bylaws say. Here I am in the assemblies of God, and I'm going to get in trouble if I do what you're what you're asking me to do. And I went back to sleep. And he woke me up a third time with the same words, and I finally thought, you know what? Here I call myself a minister of the gospel, and if Jesus is asking me to do something, I'd better do it. I mean, this is what I'm supposed to do. huh?" And so... Uh, uh, I said yes, and I went back to sleep. The next day I went to my office and I began looking, thinking, what in the world can I say about ecumenism uh, that will uh, bring about the healing of this rift? I didn't have a clue. So I thought, well, how do I even approach this? Because everything I'd ever heard about ecumenism within the Assemblies of God had been negative. So I began looking at the earliest documents that I had. Everywhere I went, there was this appeal to John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he is saying, you know, Lord, I want you to keep them, uh, and I want them to be one as we are one, okay? And it suddenly struck me that the very essence, the very core of the whole question about unity between Christians is wound up in that prayer of Jesus, and that prayer was everywhere in Pentecostal literature. And I thought, well, how in the world did we get from there to where we are today, which is so anti-historic uh, anti- uh, churches and so forth, <laughs> and even against one another? And it was the kind of tracing out of that history which, um, which became my presidential address. And what I said was, you know, there are things that we could give to that larger body, and there are things that we could receive from that larger body, and we don't need to be ashamed of who we are as Pentecostals because what we have is real. Hmm. And, and there was somebody at that uh, meeting, I think it was Donald Dayton, who was a member of the Wesleyan Holiness <laughs> Tradition, and Don uh, sent a copy of that speech to uh, the National Council in the United States, and they, uh, the Director of Faith and Order at that, that time, who was Brother Jeff Groh, uh, uh, Roman Catholic, sent copies to the Vatican and the World Council, and I have been working on uh, invitations from that speech since 1982. That's okay. how I got involved in ecumenism. It's just a-
0: I have one more question, but we've <laughs> got to get you to well, – let me see if we can do can – we, can we do – Can we go another five minutes? It's about 17 minutes. To- okay. We, we can Okay. Okay. Great. okay. Great. They won't start right at nine, will they?
1: Yeah, pretty close.
0: Okay. So um, – I think this is related to, I think, what is the the last question I want to ask you? Um, Because, as we've discussed, globally, Pentecostalism is not a denomination. The Pentecostal spirit and experience is now within all of the major denominations. It's a quarter of the church. And um, I think you can argue that, that that the face of the church may be predominantly Pentecostal at some point in the next century. I want to ask you... Uh, from your you know life spent in this church as a as a worshipping in this mm-hmm. denomination, um, loving this denomination right. um, and also as an historian and a scholar, you right. know as you look at this global future of Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism now I think is so influential. what a responsibility comes with that right. what power yes um, for something that has started so power, spontaneously, yes. right. You know, what is your greatest hope uh, and what is your greatest fear? What are you concerned about yep. working on in your church so that that, that power um, unfolds um, in a way that you feel is consonant with the spirit of this religion that started 100 right. years ago here?
1: Um, You know, I think it's a tendency of all groups uh, that move upward in terms of their social status. You know, I mean, one of the things that has been wonderful about Pentecostalism is that it is, in a sense, so undiscovered. Uh, And it is not – has not been uh, self-conscious about – what power it has. Uh, you know, I've been corresponding with uh, one of our area directors in the, the Foreign Missions Division of the Assemblies of God this very week, and he is saying to me, uh, you know, we are very apolitical. Everywhere we go, we are apolitical. And I want to say, yes, that's right. And no, it isn't, because <laughs> being apolitical is certainly a vote for the status quo wherever we go. And that's not necessarily good. There are some times when I wish we could be or would be political, we tend not to be that, and I hope that there will be some kind of discovery of the political power as well, though I fear the way we might use that political power and that 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 bothers me I think the hardest part is is knowing uh, when to push and when not to push, and I think what we need to do as Pentecostals is to keep our eye on God and and keep asking ourselves. Where would, where would God want us to go in this particular situation rather than assuming that because we've always done it this way or because we think this is the best way at this moment, this is the only way we can go? Uh, I, I have a concern that within the Pentecostal tradition there isn't a lot uh, – there's not a great ability, especially by Pentecostal leaders, to tolerate difference of opinion, uh, to engage in open discussion without the possibility of recrimination. Uh, I I, I see that going on. I think we're losing some very fine people as a result of that. But on the whole, I would say um, uh, that that, that the heart of who we are, uh, that is this personal relationship uh, that's a deep relationship where we have actually been touched by God at very uh, deep levels, is something that we need to continue to push Uh, to to encourage people to engage in uh, a a quest, if you would, a spiritual quest, uh, so that their their lives are turned upside down. I I dare say that within the two-thirds world, the developing world, I mean, one of the things that's unique about Pentecostalism is that it doesn't have to look exactly the same everywhere, and it doesn't, and doesn't? it is, and They're it is very no. adaptive to culture, very and to human to, lives. Exactly, the way they are, right. and therefore, I think it can play different roles in different regions. It doesn't have to have a kind of global political presence. Right. You know? Well, I
0: mean, I think about your work with the International Vatican Pentecostal uh-huh. Dialogues, and fine, Pentecostals can be a political, but in in countries in Latin America where they where the where um, there have been a majority of Catholics, right. and the Roman Catholic Church has been such an important social force, right. which has also meant that the judges and the presidents and the the absolutely. police chiefs and the and the generals have been Catholic, right. and they will now be Pentecostal. I mean, that has political ramifications, whether Pentecostals want it or not.
1: Yes, absolutely, it it does. Uh, though, uh, you know, and I would say that the even the worship in Catholic churches these days is very different uh, than it was. Before, we'll call it charismatic renewal within the Catholic right. Church, which is a, a direct uh, relationship with Pentecostal movement. You know, mm-hmm. Pentecostals within the Catholic Church now number, I think the, the last statistic I saw two weeks ago was 130 million people. That's better than one in ten identify with this kind of Pentecostality mm-hmm. uh, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of Roman Catholicism. Um, i I dare say that, in some places, for instance, in Brazil, you have a number of Pentecostals who are now running for political office quite a number and uh, that that makes me nervous in a sense, as long as they are not responsible for the government. If they get you know caught up in some kind of a corrupt government, there goes the whole uh, witness, or potentially so so i, I mean I, I think that they what's really the, need what's to be the very
0: spiritual the theological task then for people like you. And places like Fuller Seminary where you work, which is really a training ground for a lot of global leaders.
1: Well, I think uh, my job is to help people understand where they come from and why it is that it's important for them to be in touch with their roots because their roots will help to direct the future in, in where they're going. And those roots are rich and they are broad and they are inclusive and uh, you know they they engage people at all different kinds of levels. There is this social conscience that's present there, and I think it's a matter of uh, helping them to understand and and tap into that and and point them to some good directions in the future okay not not simply to assume that they have all the answers right up front
0: okay and that is part of the tradition too that it the is. answers come
1: yes, the answers come because the Lord leads
0: if experience is really the core and and uh and so there are very few kind of points of theology that maybe all Pentecostals in the world would agree. And I want to ask you, as somebody who's lived your life in this tradition, you know, what is what is core for you about spiritually, theologically, about being Pentecostal? Uh,
1: you know, there are there, there are there are some very distinctive kinds of teachings that we have. But it seems to me that bottom line. Uh, we trust in a God who is a living God, who is a powerful God, who can do anything God wishes to do. We've never said, he can't do this, he won't do this, Uh, he closed the door on that, or whatever. We simply say, expect the impossible. You know, expect that. And uh, in the process... Develop a relationship that is an ongoing kind of a relationship. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in prayer, and I don't spend a lot of time in prayer. Uh, the way I, I mean, It seems to me that my, my life is a constant prayer, and I'm constantly thinking about God through the day. How does this affect you, Lord? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Could you give me some direction here? I need some wisdom on this. Help me with the answer to this. And, you know, it's as though God is walking right next to me, and we're having this constant conversation. And, and I think that that's what we're really about, you know, that if God is directing our paths and taking us where we need to go, we need always to be sensitive to the fact that he's present, and therefore we can talk to him. Uh, as a friend closer than a brother, if you would uh which is the way the scripture sometimes talks about it but but clearly, as a real living being who cares and and has a tremendous uh interest in our personal well being and wants to use us for his own glory, and I think it 's a matter of just helping people to enter into that relationship in such a way that God can be glorified
0: okay let 's get you to that interest. <laughs>